Welcome once again. We're here at our study in the Epistle of Paul to the Philippians. We're in chapter 3 tonight. Uh, Last week just went into the first part of verse 9. We're going to go into the second part, finish verse 9, and do 10 and 11 tonight, Lord willing. So welcome, and let's begin with prayer. Father, again, we are grateful to you that you give us your word. We feel so privileged to have the very sacred words that by your Ruach HaKodesh, You carried the authors of these words along to make sure that what they were writing was indeed the revelation of the truth that you intended about yourself, about mankind, about our Savior Yeshua, about the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, and about who we are in you and what you want of us and how you intend that we should be lights in this world for your glory and for the salvation that you have completed in our Messiah Yeshua. So we thank you, O Lord, for all of the truth of your word, and we just pray that we would uh, handle it well, and that we would put it into our hearts, our minds, so that our lives might be molded according to your word, that we would be living testimonies of your greatness to this world and to each other. O Lord, I pray that you would bless the various communities that are represented here, Uh, As those of you that are in other parts of the country, Lord, we pray that you would strengthen our communities and that Yeshua would be lifted up in our midst and that we would be genuine, full, bright lights in this world. For there are so many who are lost and need to be given the good truth of the gospel. So, Lord, we pray that you would embolden us to that, give us wisdom, Help us in that, and may your word, even that we study tonight, cause us to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. We bless you for all these things, in Yeshua's name. Amen. We're going to read chapter 3. We're reading from the New International Version tonight. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Messiah Yeshua, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the Torah, the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gained to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Messiah. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Messiah Yeshua my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Messiah and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the Torah, but that which is through faith in the Messiah, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, Yeshua, Messiah, yes, to know the power of His resurrection and participation in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Messiah Yeshua took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Messiah Yeshua. All of us, then, who are mature, should take such a view of things, and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, Many live as enemies of the cross of Messiah. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, 
and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Yeshua Messiah, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. Well, there's an awful lot in that chapter, and uh, it's always a challenge uh, for me to think of what I should emphasize, and uh, and I don't have time to emphasize everything, uh, and that wouldn't be profitable, because we, we do want to get the main message, the full picture. And so we're just looking again at verse 9, and we're starting in the middle of it, actually, with our notes. And that is, and may be found in him, Paul says, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law or the Torah, but that which is through faith in Messiah, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And so, as we closed last week, I just noted that Paul uh, elaborates what he means in the former clause by the expression that I may gain Messiah. To gain Messiah, he utilizes the passive voice of the word to find, thus emphasizing that to be in him is not something that one is able to bring about himself, but that ultimately the Father fully reckons the believer in Yeshua to be in him, that is, counted as righteous, as Yeshua himself is righteous. And so we ended by saying, thus Paul paints a beautiful picture for everyone who, by faith in Yeshua, is reckoned by the Father as united with Yeshua, and thus participating in his righteousness. For those who are in him are declared by the Father as having the very righteousness of Yeshua himself imputed to them. And that's why I ended with these um, lines from uh, the hymn. Uh, The hymn is, Christ's grave is vacant now. And the two lines that uh, came to my mind as I was working on this were these, Reach my blessed Savior first. Take him from God's esteem. Prove Jesus bears one spot of sin. Then tell me I'm unclean. In other words, if you can't find that uncleanness in Yeshua, then you won't find it in me as far as he is concerned. Granted, we are not yet fully sanctified yet, but we will be, for when we see him, we will be like him. He will transform our earthly self into a heavenly reality, and we will forever be with the Lord. Well, to be found in him emphasizes being given to Messiah by the Father, and this means to be fully associated with him, since it is only by him that salvation has been secured for all those for whom he died. That is, to be found in him means that what he died for and rose for will inevitably be his. He will lose none. Thus Paul repeatedly describes the believer as being in Messiah, in the Greek in Christo, that is, being viewed by the Father as fully righteous, even as Yeshua himself is righteous. Therefore, I give you a few verses. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Messiah Yeshua. For the law of the Spirit of life in Messiah Yeshua has set you free from the law of sin and death. That's Romans 8, 1 through 2. And then we have 1 Corinthians 1, 30 through 31. But by his doing you are in Messiah Yeshua, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Here's 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Messiah, he is a new creature or a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Here's Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Yeshua Messiah, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Messiah. Ephesians 2.5-7. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Messiah, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Messiah Yeshua, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Messiah Yeshua. For we are his workmanship, Ephesians 2.10 reminds us, created in Messiah Yeshua for good works, which God prepared beforehand 
so that we would walk in them. We are created, recreated in Messiah Yeshua. And finally, 1 Thessalonians 4.16, and I've just chosen a few. There are many, many times when Paul uses this phrase. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Messiah will rise first. What exactly does he mean by in Messiah? Well, (laughs) that's lessons in itself. And there's been much written on it. But ultimately, the ultimate, the pinnacle of it all, is that the Father views those who are born again by means of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, those who have come to faith in the Lord, in Messiah Yeshua. They are viewed by the Father as so united with Him that they are counted as righteous as He is. Imputed righteousness The righteousness of Yeshua is put upon us. Or could we say it this way, if we wanted a more visual? The glory and grade that Yeshua got on the exam is put in the column for each one of us when we're graded. We are in Him. And obviously, the point of it is simple. It's this. Would the Father ever reject His Son? No. Could Yeshua ever be condemned for his sin? No, he's without sin. Is Yeshua eternal, with no beginning and with no end? Yes. Now that's not true of us, but it is in one sense that we have an eternal soul and we will forever be with the Lord. And this is well on Paul's mind in uh, Philippians. And you can understand why. As we've talked about before, he's in prison. He doesn't know precisely what's going to take place in the very near future. But he is a perfect example in what he writes here of what it means to trust in the Lord and to commit oneself to Him and have His glory as our main goal in life. Well, it seems quite apparent that Paul utilizes a kind of poetic chiasm. Now, chiasm comes from the Greek which is the X, which means you have things that come together in the middle, where the middle is the emphasis. And we see that happening here. And it, it happens in the way that he describes the glory and wonder of being found in him, that is, being declared righteous by the substitutionary work of Yeshua on behalf of all who have been given to him. And I put this in the footnote in John 6, you remember, Verse 37, Yeshua says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. There have been those who have been given to Yeshua for whom he would die, and by whose power and by the Spirit would be drawn to him so that they would forever be his. We have been given to the Messiah. Now you might think to yourself, that's not a very kind gift. (laughs) I mean, look at us. We're fallen. We're sinners. And yet we've been given to him, and he has redeemed us, so that we stand as trophies of his greatness. And we are forever his. And he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and those who come to me I will never cast away. This is our assurance. We will be energized by the Ruach to become more and more like him. The structure of the following lines were crafted by Paul, who was being carried along by the Ruach HaKodesh, as we know. Uh, Peter writes in his second epistle that holy men of old were borne along by the Spirit as they spoke, as they wrote, as they gave it the Scriptures. And it's crafted by Paul so as to make these lines easier to remember and thus regularly to meditate upon them. In other words, it's more kind of poetic. Now, I know it's not for us because we're not reading the Greek Uh, But uh, those who were Greek speakers to whom this epistle was written would have recognized this kind of pattern because it's well known in Greek poetry. Note this chiastic structure following the actual Greek phrases which places emphasis upon the middle phrase. In other words, where the X, that's what a key, chiasm, key is an X where the X meets in the middle. And so we have, he says, not having my righteousness derived from the law but that which is by faith in Messiah 
the out-of-God righteousness, literally, I'm being very literal with the Greek here, by means of faith. So what I've done is I've numbered them. My, okay, is, is parallel to the last line. So 1A and 1B. My, that is, by means of the faith that the Lord has given me. And then the, the second line is righteousness. And what's the parallel? It's exactly the same. 2A and 2B are both righteousness. Okay? 3A is derived from the law, which is opposite of 3B, that which is from God, the righteousness which is out of God, or comes forth from God. And where does this all lead us? To the most important phrase, but that which is by faith in the Messiah. So faith in the Messiah is sandwiched between Paul's previous life and now the life that he has in Yeshua. And so, as I've noted in the notes there, the arrows point to the primary aspect of this phrase. So, if we were to, I've, I've given it to you uh, in the notes, the first my is the opposite of 1b, my doing, my works, my being Hebrew of Hebrews and so forth, as opposed to by means of faith, reminding us that our salvation is a gift of God, not something one earns. For faith itself is the gift of God and is obtained by God's gracious working, not something the believer has done on their own or by their own power. You see, it is just within our fallen nature that we think somehow we can draw God's favor to us by doing something special. No, we are favored by God because we are in the Messiah. And that is by faith, not by works. And then the righteousness, as I've noted, refers to one's own righteousness at the beginning. Paul then refers to God's righteousness freely given to the believer. You can see the opposites. This is previously, in Paul's mind, derived from the law, earning one's righteousness by works, which he thought was the case, but was not, and comes to the truth that it's by means of faith, righteousness as the gift of God through the work of Yeshua in paying for sin. And then the middle is the most important, that which is by faith in Messiah. It's by faith, not by works. He keeps, <laughs> he keeps emphasizing this over and over and over again. Yet, even in Christianity, as, as especially in, in rabbinic Judaisms, there's always this idea that I somehow merit God's love and God's favor by being a good person, by going to my uh, religious activities and so forth and so on. No. Well, you say, Tim, if that's the case, then there's no need to, to go to assembly or to go to church or to go to synagogue. or there's no, You know, we just can do whatever we want. We're in already. We'll never lose. Yes, but we've been changed. God has given us a new person. He's made us into something that we weren't before. And in that regard, we have a heart that desires to please him more and more to put to death the deeds of the flesh and to live by way of the Spirit. So Paul goes on to say, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law or from the Torah. Here Paul, with absolute clarity, teaches us in these inspired words that righteous standing before God cannot be earned by whatever means mankind may invent. I don't see how anybody can study this passage and think that there's ever any way that a person could gain right standing with God through doing good works. It's so obvious and so clear. The primary emphasis that Paul gives us here is that the Torah was never given as a means of obtaining righteous standing before God, for such righteous standing simply cannot be derived from the Torah for the obvious reason that fallen mankind inherits the guilt of Adam, beginning life with a sinful nature and thus already judged as unrighteous by the Almighty. Paul teaches this in numbers of different places, but one that is maybe most obvious is Romans 5, 12-14. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, proved by all sinned. The proof that death spread to all men is that everyone sins. For until the Torah sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no Torah, no law. Therefore, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. Now, how is Adam a type? He represents the whole 
human race. In other words, he represents others, even as Yeshua represented those who had been given to him. And even as Adam's sin affects all who are related to him, who come from him, so Yeshua's death, resurrection, ascension, intercession, brings those who are related to him, who are in him, to salvation and forgiveness of sins. Here we see the clear and direct teaching of the scriptures. Because every person is born a sinner, all are deserving of the righteous wrath of God. And to come into an eternal and loving relationship with the Creator is not something that anyone can purchase or earn in their own strength. Some of you may be saying, Tim, we know this. <laughs> you don't have to tell us over and over again. Well, Paul tells us over and over again. Why? Because there is something deep within us that still has this idea that we can gain something from God based upon our own works. No. When we obey God, when we walk in the footsteps of Messiah, we're doing so because He is enabling us to do it. Now, I grant there's a there's kind of a divide here. You say, but wait a minute. Don't we have to say yes to Him? Yes, we do. But is it not the Spirit of God who continues to urge us on to do better? We are not alone. We have been given the very presence of the Lord. And He is moving us. And He is calling us and urging us to use every means of grace possible to become more and more what pleases Him. When we neglect those, He disciplines us. Whom the Father loves, He disciplines right? And so, it is God's will, and it is God's purpose to make us more and more like His Son. So, it's good for us to be reminded, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. And that engenders love for Him. And that love for Him strengthens us to do what pleases Him. We are fully accepted We don't have to become better in order for Him to accept us. We are fully accepted in the Beloved One. But the reality of that, knowing that, changes us so that we want to do what pleases Him. So, to come into an eternal and loving relationship with our Creator is not something that anyone can purchase or earn on their own strength. The wages of sin is death, that is, eternal separation from God. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Messiah Yeshua, our Lord. Romans 6.23 While it is surely true that all fallen mankind as a whole, being born with a sin nature, naturally think that a person can win God's favor by his or her own good works or deeds, in our text Paul is specifically addressing those who are counting on their Jewish status, whether by birth or by rabbinic conversion, as maintained through obeying the Torah, to be that which secures God's favor and blessing both in this world and in the world to come. Now, certain wings of Christianity have taken that over, but in a different way. You know, if you're a good Roman Catholic, if you're a good Mormon, if you're a good whatever, (laughs) you work your way into God's favor. That's not what the Scriptures teach. We must put to death the deeds of the flesh, but why? Why must we do that? Why must we grow in our love for God, love for one another, and in our ability to live righteously before the Lord? Why is that to be the, the, one of the primary goals of our lives? If not the primary goal, it is because we have been changed. We're not who we used to be. We've been given a new mind, a new heart, to please Him. And We ought to do all within our power to do that in the best possible ways. Which means what? Immersing ourselves in the Scriptures. Having the Scriptures well in our hearts and minds. Seeking to live in accordance with them. By means of prayer. Prayer, daily prayer, is an essential aspect of the believer's life. And the Scriptures teach us not to neglect the assembling of ourselves together with other believers. Why? Because we help each other. We encourage each other. We build one another up in the truths of the Word. 
and we help each other in life to be encouraged to walk in the footsteps of the Messiah. So, we do this as maintained through obeying the Torah to be that which secures God's favor and blessing both in this world and in the world to come. But apart from dying to oneself and being given new life by faith in God and His Messiah, what one may consider as righteous actions actually fall completely short of obtaining right standing with God. We have it in the Scriptures. Did we not do this? Did we not do that? And what does He say? Depart from me, I never knew you. Going through the motions and the uh, traditions and so forth of just a religious kind of a, a, a relationship with God is not going to work. Paul makes it very clear here. Isaiah wrote, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. So what many might consider to be righteous deeds, I mean, I suppose we could hear people (laughs) or think about hearing people saying to God in the time of judgment, no, I, I help the poor. I, uh, you know, I, I help my neighbors. Um, I didn't steal too much. I didn't lie very often. Um, <laughs> so forth and so on. The righteous deeds that we have in our list, if they're not done from the heart of faith in God, if they're not done in order to please Him, by means of the Spirit of God who indwells us, if we have not yielded our lives to Yeshua, confessed our sins, repented, and and received the salvation that He gives to us, we will never stand before the Father. But in Him, in Yeshua, we are guaranteed. And that is what motivates us out of love. Consider what He has done for us. We studied this in the second chapter. And I think Paul has that in mind even in our chapter here. Surely Paul was a living testimony of one who excelled in the eyes of the Jewish authorities for his outward adherence to the established religious halakha of the Pharisaic sect to which he belonged. He was was at the top of the heap. Yet as we have seen in the opening verses of this chapter, when Paul was confronted by Yeshua himself in terms of gaining right standing with God, he considered all of his religious achievements as worthless in terms of winning God's favor and blessing. You see, obedience is the fruit of salvation. It's not the root. We have been changed. We have been given the Spirit. We have been given a growing ability to please the Lord. And when we please Him, it's because of who He has made us, not because we're seeking to gain favor with Him. Thus, we have, from these inspired words of Paul, yet another clear and incontrovertible proof that eternal salvation is obtained by faith alone, which the Reformers called sola fide, only by faith, and not by anything a person can do to earn God's favor and thereby to be accepted and received by him as righteous. Just one comment on sola fide. There are those telling us that sola fide, we can't believe in that, because it's not just faith. You have to have obedience. No, they misunderstand sola fide. Faith is demonstrated by living righteously before the Lord. That's the fruit of our faith. But sola fide, only by faith, the Reformers meant, that one can only stand righteous before God by exercising faith in Yeshua. And that means seeking forgiveness, repenting, accepting Him as one's Lord and Savior, and giving one's life to Him in that decision. Yes, sola fide, only by faith will we stand right before God. And faith always gives way to the fruit of good works, of good living, of righteousness, and so forth. He says, but that which is through faith in Messiah. It's not by one's works. It's not by one's position. All of those things he counted as loss. And remember, but that which is through faith in Messiah, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. He repeats it because he wants it to be emphatic. First, we should note that grammatically there are two ways the phrase translated faith in Messiah could be understood. This is because the Greek is 
te dia mistuos Christu. And this is, literally, the through faith of Messiah. Literally. Through the faith, or we could say faithfulness of Messiah. That's because the word pistis, here pisteos, uh, is both faith and faithfulness. Okay? To act faithfully is the, the word uh, group has that meaning as well. So the grammatical issue are two. First, that the Greek word pistis, which here we have uh, a different form of the word, but that's the way the Greek is. Um, the word pistis can carry either the meaning to be faithful or to believe or trust. Moreover, the word Messiah, Christu, is in the genitive, can be read as objective. That is, he's the object of one's faith, or subjective, he's the subject of faith, meaning either that Messiah is the object, thus faith in Messiah, and this is how the KJV, the New American Standard Bible, the ESV, and the NIV have it, or Messiah is the subject of faith, thus that which is through the faithfulness of Messiah. That is, Messiah's faithfulness. So let's read it again. We can read it this way. But that which is through the faithfulness of Messiah. Well, you could see how some would take it that way. And that is, uh, that is exactly how the Net Bible, the Complete Jewish Bible, Geneva Bible, and the Hebrew Roots Bible uh, translate it. So which is it? Is it faith in Messiah, or is it Messiah's faithfulness to us? Well, and obviously in the scriptures, both are true. But what do we find in our verse? If we take the verse as a whole, as it surely ought to be read, and in the larger context comparing this verse with chapter 1, verse 29 and 2.17, it seems clear that the greater weight of evidence falls on the side of accepting the genitive, Christu, as an objective genitive, and thus emphasizing that Yeshua is the object of the believer's faith. In fact, the vast majority of the times Paul uses the word pistis, faith, in his epistles, he consistently uses it to denote believers putting their trust or their faith in Messiah Yeshua. I've given you some uh, uh, in the footnote there. Uh, I've given you reference to it at least. And the next phrase of our verse would surely support this understanding. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of exercising faith in Yeshua. Here it is clear that Paul is teaching us regarding placing one's faith in the person and work of Yeshua in order to gain a righteous standing before God. Surely these inspired words of the Apostle affirm beyond doubt that the glorious privilege of a sinner being received by God as fully righteous is only because God himself has declared that person righteous on the basis that the payment for their sin has fully satisfied his infinite holiness. Stop and think about it for a moment. There are many who think that God's love can overcome or overstep or can uh, cover up his uh, infinite holiness. That his love is greater than his holiness. So he can just accept people in even though their sins aren't paid for. No. God is a three times holy God. Holy, holy, holy. The uh, the angelic host cry, right? Three times holy, which means what? His holiness must be satisfied before he has eternal relationship with a sinner. And how is that possible? Is any sin an infinite transgression against an infinite holy God? Yes. We have all kinds of illustrations that we can use for this, but if you take something that's pure, absolute pure white, and you find just one tiny speck of color on it. It's no longer pure white. God cannot be diminished in even the smallest unit of his holiness and remain God. Therefore, what is the payment for sin? The payment has to be infinite. And there's only one who has lived and died and rose again who is infinite in his being, who is likewise infinitely holy. Only Yeshua could ever be the Savior of sinners who stand in the presence of God. 
So such a payment could never have been amassed by the sinner himself, but could only be made by one who is himself without sin and who is himself infinite in his very being. Moreover, it is his righteousness that is given to all who recognize their utter inability to gain his favor and who therefore accept the gift of his grace by believing and receiving by faith the promise of the gospel. When we come to this over and over again in the scriptures, it ought to just cause us to bow before him and say, how is it that I have been privileged to be yours, to be saved by you? I certainly don't deserve it. No one deserves it. But by God's love and mercy, he has drawn us to himself. It ought to cause us more and more to be his disciples, to be his servants, to be living examples of his grace. So, it is his righteousness that is given to all who recognize their utter inability to gain his favor, and who therefore accept the gift of his grace by believing and receiving by faith the promise of the gospel, the good news. Surely our text, along with many others, establishes the truth that eternal salvation is by God's grace alone and cannot be earned or secured by anyone's works. As John Calvin notes in his commentary, he thus, in a general way, speaking here of Paul, places man's merit in opposition to Christ's grace. For while the law brings works, faith presents man before God as naked, that he may be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. When therefore he declares that the righteousness of faith is from God, it is not simply because faith is the gift of God, but because God justifies us by his goodness, or because we receive by faith the righteousness which he has conferred upon us. When you stop to think about the inexplicable value of God's love and grace to us, it can do nothing to us but make us worship him more and seek to praise Him more for His love, for His goodness, for His greatness, and for the salvation that He has made for us, brought us through His providence to the point where we received it, and all of us in different ways, in different situations. But He used all of those things to bring us to Him, so that one day there will be a group of people that no one can number from every tribe, from every nation, from every family group who will praise Him and thank Him. This is because God is victorious. In the end, always He gains the victory. And so Paul goes on to say that I may know Him, the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So Paul continues expressing his greatest desire, which he began to relate in verse 9 with the phrase, so that I might gain Messiah, expressing his longing to fully be trusting in Messiah, in Yeshua, and thus pleasing him in every aspect of life. This he also communicates with the words, and may be found in him. Having fully trusted my life into his care, and having received from him assurance of his grace, forgiveness, and eternal salvation. In other words, to be found in him, to know for certain that I am his, and he is mine. And never, ever, to be so doubtful that I wonder if it's true. This is faith. Faith lays hold of that which the eye cannot see. And it even lays hold of more than the mind can fathom. Faith is the expression of things hoped for, the very evidence of things not seen. As the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 11, verse 1 tells us, that is the faith that must grow. That is the faith that must be strengthened. We don't do that by being lazy. Do we really study the scriptures? Do we hide them in our hearts? Do we read them and consider them? and apply them, and try our level best by His grace and mercy and strength to live out what they teach, that is the life of a growing child of God. These are the expressions of a soul redeemed by God's grace and fully aware 
that he has been granted full acceptance and eternal salvation through the unending grace of God in Yeshua. In short, Paul's expressions that I might gain Messiah and may be found in him are the joyful confession of being born again by the Ruach and having been granted saving faith in the work and person of Yeshua. In other words, he's saying, the goal is that I am in Messiah. I am found to be in him. Or more specifically, these are expressions of someone who has truly been forgiven and granted the status of fully righteous in God's eyes. He goes on to say that I may know him. Having given us his inner longings, which related to his having come to faith in Yeshua, Paul now in this phrase moves from justification, which means being declared righteous, to sanctification, the process by which the believer more and more conforms their life to God's standards of righteousness, becoming more and more like Yeshua in thought, word, and actions. Justification means that the trial has already taken place. He has already lifted the gavel and put it down and said, Not guilty to those who are in Yeshua. That's what justification is. Being declared not guilty. Therefore, accepted and righteous in God's sight. But what is sanctification? It's the process by which the believer becomes conformed to who he or she truly is. Paul says that I may know him. We've already uh, talked about this previously. Remember that the word know in the phrase that I may know him is related to a covenant. And that's why I'm convinced it's in the aorist infinitive. Now, uh, if you know some Greek, you know what this means. Since often the aorist indicates action that is completed, some have suggested that in this phrase, Paul is describing knowing Yeshua in the future resurrection of the eschaton. So because it's an heiress, he's saying that I may know him. In other words, I don't know him yet, but I'm going to know him in the future. Well, that doesn't fit the context at all. It also doesn't fit Greek grammar. But the heiress also is used in a punctiliar fashion, meaning a point in time. Thus, Paul used this form to express his present desire to know God. That is, to know his will, his instructions and commands for all aspects of his life at this time. Punctiliar means it can be point after point after point, but it means that I will know what he wants me to do. Haven't we all been in that uh, in that situation? Lord, what should we do here? We seek his guidance. We don't always know. But we know that he will lead us. So here once again the word know is used in a covenant sense, as I mentioned uh, some verses earlier in, in chapter 3, verse 8. For to know him means to maintain and to live out his life as a true and abiding member of the covenant of salvation into which the Lord had brought him with the Ruach HaKodesh as the seal of the covenant. In other words, it doesn't mean that, that Paul didn't know him. It means I want to continue to know him. In other words, it's the covenant that I'm in that I need to maintain and grow in appreciation for. And so we have in Ephesians 1:13 and 14, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. You see, here we have the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, as the pledge, and with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. That's another important word. Those are both covenant terms. Many times when covenants were made in the ancient world, they used wax as a seal and they made, a, they made an impression on it. And it was a, a, a seal that no one could open this until it came to the rightful owner. Well, Yeshua sent the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God indwells us and he is the seal of the covenant that God has made with us. If the Spirit of God dwells in us, then we are in that covenant. And if the Spirit of God dwells in us, then he is going to continue to enable us to grow in holiness and in righteousness and in doing what God wants with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. We are his. We belong to him and he will not lose anything and anyone who belongs to him. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. What is this power? What is the power of his resurrection? It first reminds us that death has occurred for those who are resurrected have died. 
The power of Yeshua's resurrection, then, is that he proved himself to have the power over death. Even as Paul was in prison awaiting the verdict of the judges, remember, as we've said before, the verdict may come with with the death penalty. Yet he was able to reckon his current suffering as experiencing, in some measure, the very kind of suffering Yeshua himself endured, and thus was enabled, with this perspective in mind, to rejoice in such suffering since it drew him close to the Messiah he served. I think perhaps he's saying here, in in one way, he's saying numbers of things, uh, uh, but it's like, I get to experience a little bit of the suffering, not nearly what Yeshua went through, but a little of the suffering of what he went through for me. Surely Paul's life at this juncture hung in the balance held by those who had the power of life and death. Yet he was insistent upon putting his hope in the truth of God, that death was not the end, but that resurrection from the dead and life with God for eternity was a surety. This world is punctuated with death. And in our current times where we're uh, dealing with a pandemic Uh, there's been a lot of people that have struggled with fear of death. Fear of of being infected and and, uh, being overcome by this virus and so forth. We see this evidencing itself in all kinds of actions in our world today. And Paul says there's no need for it. Even as Yeshua rose from the dead, so we will raise from the dead. So those who have died before us will raise from the dead. And those who are His will rise to life with Him. Can we live in the reality of that and not allow death or even the idea of death to rob us of the joy that we have in life in Yeshua? Yes, life with God for eternity is a surety if we are in the Messiah. This gave Paul, gave him the power to endure the woes that he had experienced and may yet come in this fallen world. Thus, it is one's true faith in God that enables a person to bear up under the woes of this world. 1 John 5.4 For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. This is what Paul is uh, modeling for us here. I mean, here's a man that's in prison for no reason just because those who hate him uh, drew up things that were false against him. And yet, there he is in prison, praising the Lord. There's an example for us. Can we praise the Lord even in the difficulties of our daily life, of the things that bother us, of the things that drag us down, of the difficulties that we suffer when things are going wrong? Yes, we can as we grow in our faith and as our faith is strengthened in Him. And so Paul goes on being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This wording no doubt rests upon the language Paul used in chapter 2, verse 5-8, through 8, where he admonishes the Philippian believers to have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Messiah Yeshua. In other words, in the same thing that he's talking about here, he's saying, I've been able to experience a bit of what it must have been like for Yeshua to suffer. I can share in some of that uh, suffering what it means to suffer for righteousness sake. So the mindset he admonishes there is seen in the way he outlined the manner in which Yeshua humbled himself, left the glory of his heavenly abode, came in the likeness of human flesh and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So if you take the incarnation of Yeshua as the model, what did he suffer? More than we could ever explain, because we have no way to talk about infinity. We only think in finite terms, whether we like it or not. And yet this infinite one came and lived in a finite world and gave up some of the use of his attributes in order to experience or to show to others that he was living as a real man. Sinless, yes, but still under the, the uh, oppression of this fallen world. And here's one who's three times holy. So when Paul considers that and puts it next to his suffering, he gains great strength. Surely, if Yeshua is mine and I am his, 
then I, by faith, can trust him for each day as I suffer here in this prison, is what Paul was saying. Can we do the same? Yes, we can. That's the message of this passage. Thus, being conformed to his death must be understood as Paul's great desire to have the same inner strength and faith to follow in Yeshua's footsteps by fulfilling his mission to serve him even if this were to result in his death. So here the Apostle reminds all of us how much we must long to be like Yeshua, which includes having the same goal that he had as he humbled himself to bring about the divine plan of salvation. This causes us to constantly ask ourselves an all-important question. Is serving the Lord and living to bring about his purposes my highest goal in life? That's really what we see at the, uh, the conclusion of these verses. Paul stands before us as a witness of one who, like all of us, was a sinner, yet was saved by grace, and who grew in his strength of faith so that he was able to endure what he faced. Can we do that? Can we say, serving the Lord and living to bring about his purposes, this is my highest goal in life. As we seek to have this as our life priority, we will likewise desire to find any and all means to strengthen us to reach this goal. And there's nothing new here. How do we gain that strength? Through the scriptures, by reading them, studying them, and applying them to our lives, seeking to live them out. Then prayer, daily prayer, praying without ceasing. We can pray together. We can pray as we go. We can pray as we're driving, as long as we keep our eyes on the road. <laughs> we can pray wherever we are. We can commune with God because the Spirit of God enables us to do so. And he calls us now at this time. We have no idea when earth's history will end. But we do know this, that God is in control. And we have the privilege at this time to represent him and to honor him and to be a witness for him to be lights in this world. The ultimate goal which Paul has is to attain to the resurrection of the dead. This does not mean that he had any fear that he might not attain this goal. Rather, by the phrase to attain to the resurrection of the dead, he means to finally and eternally dwell with Yeshua. In other words, the ultimate goal that Paul had, and that every believer should have, is to hear the words from uh, Messiah himself. Well done, good and faithful servant. That needs to be before us at all times. Say, that's my goal. Even as an athlete has the goal to win the race, and trains and practices so that he or she is able to run the best race. So we too must have that finish line in mind. That's what Paul is saying here. So thank you so much for being with us during this study. And I look forward to being with you again when we start up in September. And may you have a good summer. And may the Lord bless you all by his grace. <music>